In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. St. John, St. Evagrius, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Great, so um, moving forward, I was praying about it, and I think um, there's a few things I'd like to really address right now. Something that um, I wasn't able to get to this morning. Uh, it is a lot to do with um, the different ways in which we are attacked. I was thinking about going over the seven deadly sins. And in fact, all sin can be encapsulized by pride. But the Bible itself breaks it down into three kinds of sin. And tradition has made it seven kinds of sin, seven ways of being prideful. But all sin is essentially a closing of our hearts, a lack of love. All sin could be defined as a falling short of love. Every sin from um, birth control to obvious ones like murder, to um, premarital relations, to uh, not praying. Uh, all, the whole gamut is, in one way or another, a lack of love. A lack of love, a diminishing of the calling that's placed upon us to give of our whole self in love. But um, if we're to walk through Scripture, which that's what I forgot. I'm going to have to borrow someone's Bible. a small one. Hopefully I can read it. Oh, no, Polish doesn't work. Luckily, I wanted to go over Genesis, so it's stuff that I've pretty closely, close to memorize. Um, okay. Um, very good. So, um, it's good to take a refresher course on Genesis 2-3 real quick and introduce us to what is the structure of sin and how do we overcome it. In Genesis 2, there's a ton of beautiful things that are worth taking our time to look at. If you remember, one of the most beautiful aspects is that um, God looks down upon man and sees that it's not good that man be alone. And that man is made, humanity exists in view of the other. That God from the beginning made us in such a way where we're not okay if we're alone. That we are meant to be a political animal, as we call it in philosophy. Meaning an, a, a kind of animal that is for others and with others. 
That's an important point. It's very, very beautiful to see that God intended that we learn how to love by loving each other. He could have made us just so that we have already almost heaven, you know, where we're directly in relation with God. But even our heaven now is going to also be with each other. So he looks upon man and says, It's not good that he be alone. I shall make a helper fit for him. And that helper is that complementary person. When he finally finds her, after they pass the animals before, and the animals really cannot be someone that corresponds to our heart. When finally she appears, he says those first words, those words of love, when he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Finally, this is someone whom I can love, who has dignity on their own, who is like me and I could be a friend with, therefore. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, has, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in that state, in the garden, man and woman were created And there was this fundamental, original vulnerability to one another. Because in the next verse, it's going to speak about how the husband leaves, the man leaves his wife, the man leaves his mother and father, rather, and cleaves himself to his wife. Hopefully he doesn't leave his wife. And then finally, they are naked, but they're not ashamed. They're able to look upon each other in their vulnerability and not use each other and not dominate over each other. Sin is going to be introduced as domination in the next chapter. But here, already, we were intended to be in harmony and to respect each other for who we are and to receive each other wholeheartedly. Notice they're naked, and the nakedness is vulnerable. There was no sin at that time, so it's not really a big surprise. Once chapter 3 hits, though, there is some very important points about what we're talking about this morning, about spiritual warfare. In chapter 2, there is something else, though. God, from the beginning, he intended that there be two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is this communion with God and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that's a very interesting concept. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is when I now determine for myself what is good and evil. So a tree of knowledge of good and evil, remember, knowledge... To know is the same word that in chapter 3 is going to say Adam knows Eve or knew Eve. And then they have a baby. And because Adam knows Eve, they have a baby. Their term knowledge is something very different than us. It wasn't that Adam and Eve didn't know what was good and bad. They knew when they were in the garden that 
it was wrong to disobey. They were very aware of that. Knowledge in this language which they're using meant something different. If you know someone, you don't have babies with them. But in this, in this context, knowledge means to have a child. Adam knows Eve and they have a baby. In the other context, in chapter 2, to know what is good and evil, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, means that they take it for themselves. I take for myself what is good and evil. I make what is good and evil for myself. I will determine for myself what is right and wrong. And it seems to me this is the same temptation to make for myself what is good and evil. Only God can do that. But notice the devil, when he's tempting, he's going to say those great words, you will be like God, seeing for yourself what is good and evil. And God, he's going to put that in the middle of the garden. He's going to test them. You know, God will actually allow them to be tested. That's an interesting phenomenon. Does God lead you into sin? No, of course not. God does not lead you into sin. But he does allow for a temptation. He does allow for that. Already from the garden, he allowed for the temptation to happen. And why does God allow for that to happen? If it's not for us to be able to offer ourselves entirely to him, then I don't know why. If it's not to give us the opportunity to be freely offering of ourselves entirely to him, then I have no idea. That's the only answer I've found. It's this desire that God has, that he wants us to be like him, actually, in a sense of freely offering of ourselves. And so... Let's read through chapter 3 now. Now the serpent was more subtle than, than other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. There is Eve's first mistake. Her first mistake was to even dialogue with the devil. The first mistake, and that's where Evagrius was talking about it so much earlier, her first mistake was to respond. The first mistake was not to recognize and denounce. The moment that you dialogue with the devil, you've already lost. He's much smarter than you are. And so the spiritual combat begins by not entering into it. And it's interesting because the devil is almost going to, no, he's not almost, he's going to introduce an opposition that wasn't there. 
Did God really tell you that? As if there was an opposition between God and them, as if God would lie to them. He introduces an opposition and makes them seem like, to Eve's eyes, God is dominating over them and they need to free themselves from God. So when the woman, oh, here we go. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. And that's a truth and a lie. And the devil always tells almost all truth, but with a little lie. It's a truth and a lie. You will not die. When they ate of the fruit, did they die right away? No. It introduced death into their, into their heart. They died spiritually right away, not physically. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight for the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So immediately, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And it's, in a sense, I guess it's true. In a sense, it's true in the sense that we are able to say, no, I, I say this is right, I say this is wrong. I'm able to defend for myself what I think to be right and wrong. And yet, it's a lie because in reality it destroys and it brings about death. And so what the devil, the first thing that the devil does is he creates an opposition between God and man. And makes it seem to the eyes of Eve as if God is keeping something from them. And then Eve is going to look at the fruit and she's going to see something. What, are, what is she going to see? In this we find the three fundamental temptations I talked to you about. What does the scripture say? It says it's good to eat. What was the second one? How many people have memorized it? Delight for the eyes. And good to make one wise. And throughout the history of the church, these have been called the three concupiscences. The three fundamental temptations. Three different kinds of temptations. Notice, how many times was Jesus tempted? Three times. And they'll be the same exact temptations. We'll come back in the life of Jesus. The first epistle of John, he writes about it too. He writes about the three concupiscences. And there, let's start looking at it. It's good to eat. This is the temptation of the flesh. They call the concupiscence of the flesh. 
And that includes everything from food, sex, drugs, alcohol, everything of the body. That whole category of sin. And what does that do? It's good to eat. It takes the human mind and keeps the human mind in the body, in the body alone. The delight for the eyes, vanity. That all things appear good. And everything is about how I appear before others. Concupiscence of the eyes. Interesting thing about vanity. Pride is present already in it. But the difference between pride and vanity is that pride is when a, a rock could be sitting right next to me, and I know I'm better than it. Vanity is when I want to make sure the rock knows I'm better than it. When I want to make sure everyone knows I'm better than it. When I want to shine before everyone. And good to make one wise. It's a temptation towards domination, towards becoming a god, becoming the wise one, the source, becoming the principle. We call it the pride of life. It's interesting because Jesus is going to be tempted. And he's tempted by those three, right? And so let us turn to Matthew 4. In Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted three times. And in those three temptations, you're going to find the same things. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. It's interesting. He went for 40 days and 40 nights, and he wasn't tempted. And after the 40 days and 40 nights happen, he gets tempted. Afterwards, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. First temptation, he gives a verse. Man shall not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him to a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge of you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. So again, you shall not tempt. Here, Jesus is tempted to show off. 
And lastly, again, again the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone you shall serve. He responds with three scriptures. It's good response. But now, what else happens in Genesis 2? Jesus is going to attack the three temptations that we find in the fruit with the three verses. Later on, he's going to give also three remedies, three practical ways of fighting. Do you remember what, what the gospel is for Ash Wednesday? I probably remember because I'm a priest. I have to preach it every year. But do you remember what the gospel for Ash Wednesday is? It's the same one. There's three things that make up Lent. What's that? Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And it's funny that there's three of them, and it corresponds with these three. There are three kinds of medicine that are part of the spiritual warfare that Scripture gives. It's interesting how it all interconnects. So almsgiving, well, let's go with fasting. What does fasting fight? The flesh. Because in fasting, what do I say? I said it this morning, I think. I think I said, when I, when I say I give up bread, I say, God, I love you more than bread. When I say I give up sleep by waking up in the middle of the night and doing adoration, I say, God, I love you more than sleep. But fasting in itself is a bodily action in response to a bodily temptation. Almsgiving. You know? And when it speaks about almsgiving, um, it speaks about doing it in the quiet, too. Learning how to properly love my brother. Learning how to put the other first. Serving in the soup kitchen. Or going out of my way to serve at this church. Going out of my way... Till it, Mother Teresa would always say, you give until it hurts, kind of thing. Or else you haven't given it at all. You shall worship the God, one God. The, you shall worship God and God alone. Prayer. It's in prayer that we discover how little we are. And prayer, fasting and almsgiving transform us into becoming children of God. The three spiritual tools to fight. And so you can see very clearly um, why Our Lady of Medjugorje would speak so much about um, fasting, for example. Fasting in today's world becomes very important. It's a very important element. But now... Let's go on. What happens? 
Adam and Eve, the first thing that they do is that, well, first of all, Eve, she sees the fruit. She sees these three temptations. She takes of the fruit. She eats of the fruit. So she says yes to it. She gives in. She gives it to her husband, who probably wasn't very far. He does it too. He takes it on. What is the first effect of sin? Right after that, what happens to them? Everybody spoke at one time, and I lost them all. They knew that they were naked, exactly. Shame. The first reaction is shame. And shame prevents us from being vulnerable anymore. We stop being vulnerable. We start covering up our heart. Because we're afraid of being hurt and taken advantage of. Because remember, the devil introduced domination. He said, God is there to dominate over you, really. If you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will be like him. He introduced what we call a dialectic. He is dominating over us, so we go back and dominate over him. And And so now they have to defend themselves. They're naked. So what do they do? They clothe themselves, right? And we spend most of our life trying to protect ourselves. Part of it's good. At the end of the chapter, chapter 3, God is going to actually give them clothing. So there's actually two kinds of clothes. One which is a negative effect of sin. Um, and that is the fact that we have to protect ourselves because we're too ashamed. So I can't be vulnerable anymore and I can't show my heart to anybody. The more that I get hurt because of sin, the more I can't show my heart to anyone. Second effect of sin is it protects me against crazy people. I have to protect myself a little bit. Right before they leave the garden, God gives them clothes. And there's a certain prudence we have to have. We don't throw our pearls to swine, as Jesus would say. And so we have shame. What was the second effect? That's shame, shame still. Yeah, because they hid, hid in the trees and clothed themselves. The same idea. Adam blamed Eve. The next, the next thing that's going to happen is blame. So first thing is I hide from others. Second thing is I accuse others. So I'm taking the attention off of myself. Blame. Adam blaming Eve and Eve blaming the serpent. And the serpent having no one else just, just stuck with it. Blame. Two effects that, per, that will permanently keep us away from God if we don't fight them. The shame keeps us away from such things. The obvious ones would be keeping us away from confession, keeping us away from opening up our heart to God again. Shame also is what often will lead to divorce in a marriage because they can't open up their heart to one another anymore because they're too ashamed, too ashamed. What is Christ going to do? 
Christ here, he's going to become the lamb, and so Christ is going to be crucified naked. I'll just go like that. He's going to be crucified naked. He's going to allow himself to become vulnerable once again. Allows vulnerability. Christ also will allow the blame to fall upon him. He won't say, all right, everyone blame me. He doesn't do that. But he also doesn't go out and defend himself. He doesn't go out and defend himself. He allows the blame to come upon him as to not continue this system of domination. He doesn't want to continue to dominate over other people. What would be a third effect? The curses. The third effect would be the curses. Now, when the woman looks upon the man, the man dominates over him, over her. In the heart of marriage and relationships, there is a rupture, and it becomes domination. Now, it's not just between God and us. It's between one another. And when we go out to work, we struggle. There's a rupture now between the earth and us. We've now been broken between us. Very good. So, the work of Christ and conforming our lives to him is going to be the work of reversing this. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is the one who desires for us to return to that garden, to return to that original state which we had. Notice as a lamb, remember in Revelations, when the angel comes down and says, there is no one who can open up the scroll, the book of life. And then John starts to cry. And finally, another angel comes and says, Behold the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will open up the scroll. And then John turns around, and he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. And in that lamb, we discover something entirely new and entirely old. We discover the one who allows himself to be crucified so that he can reverse the order, no longer seeking domination. If he turned around and he saw a lion, that would mean that the lion's going to come out and kick, kick everybody's butt, you know, set everybody straight and put everything in order like Peter wanted, you know, put everyone in order. But he turns around, he doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb. And Christ came in order to show us just that. 
that in order to reverse, we have to fight the fights of love. Struggle every day with His Spirit to be vulnerable and to offer up our heart. The great fight of the spiritual life is this fight to become a lamb within the lamb. A a lamb within the lamb. So the lamb of God. He is completely vulnerable and he blames no one. But he takes the blame upon himself. Good. So now we discover that there's a structure to sin. There are three areas that sin attacks us at. That first area is the flesh, the other areas in our relationship with others, and the third area is in our relationship with God. So our body, other people, and our relationship with God. The three concupiscences. We fight them by those three things. The three scripture passages we quoted. Also the three things of fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. And we do that in order to become more and more conformed to his grace and his life, to be more and more open to his spirit and given to him. That's that. That's what I wanted to go over right now. And then I had that other thing that I titled this talk on, which was called Asedia. Something completely different. But yet, one particular aspect of this structure of sin, and I think it's the problem of our modern time. I started mentioning it this morning. I think that we're all about entertainment nowadays. We have this great need within our hearts to be entirely um, filled all the time. There's this particular vice called sloth. I would say that the modern problem, if all those concupiscence, all those problems, I don't think it's, I don't think it's drugs. I don't think it's lust. I don't think it's, um, give me another one. Uh, envy for me I think right now my suspicion is that the biggest sin of our modern times is sloth and I think sloth leads to the other ones I think it's all interconnected but sloth is a big one the asedia is the other term for it and they say it's the sin of monks normally classically Sloth is not a sin that most people would have. Sloth is a sin that monks have. Because monks spend so much time in prayer that prayer becomes, mm, I've had enough.
Okay, I don't say that because I'm still here, right? But, oh, again. After many years of praying six hours a day, hmm. I'll never admit to it because I love God in my heart. But my feelings start to go, I can't take it anymore. Can't take it anymore. And so I just sit there and instead, I don't leave, but I just fall asleep through my whole adoration. Or I don't leave, but I just read a book throughout the entire time. I don't read, but what I do is I program my adoration time to be filled with different things all the time so that I don't get distracted. I don't get distracted. It's already good, right? I'm sitting. I'm still there. I'm faithful. I'm all right. But I'm suffering. I'm suffering a lot when I'm going through it. I'm doing it by just sheer willpower. I think that's pretty common. It's more common than we think. Maybe not that extreme. Maybe not that extreme. But Asedia is also called the noontime demon. That's a nice name for it. The devil of midday. This is the same thing, just translated a different way. The devil of midday. And the reason why is it always strikes at the moments of tedium, when you don't have much to do, or when you've just had enough. That's why the other day when we're doing the retreat of the school, I want to do in the mass in the morning, because I'm afraid of the devil of midday. But nevertheless, um, going back to the desert fathers, Evagrius will say, um, the devil of midday causes the monk continuously to look out the windows and forces him to, to step out of his cell and to gaze at the sun and to see how far it is still until the ninth hour. To look at my watch once again, check my phone, my cell phone once again. And to look around, here and there, whether any of his brethren are near. Moreover, the demon sends him hatred against this place, against life itself, really, and against the work of his hands. It's a little bit different than just sheer boredom. Sloth is not laziness, as it reads right here. It's not laziness. Although the term in time does come to mean mere inactivity, rather it reveals frustration and hate, disgust at place and life itself. In Asedia, the monk abhors what God has given, namely reality and the limits of order, especially the limits of one's own selfhood. Because of this, very often we throw ourselves into movies. Because we just can't sit here anymore. We're like, <sighs> and that's what he means by hatred. It's not hatred, because I'm not actually saying, I hate what's holy. No, no, no. No one, hopefully, does that. <laughs> you do that, that's pretty bad. But nevertheless, that antsiness drives us to, um, I don't know, just to do something else. Fill the time. Fill the time. So we have a generations that are looking at their cell phone all the time. And that's why you get generations of, uh, what were some of the vices? Of drugging oneself to escape. 
why, what are we escaping that's so bad that we have to drug ourselves? Why do we have such a population that is drugged by illegal drugs and then a huge population that's drugged by legal drugs taken illegally without prescription? A huge, even larger part of our population now is taking prescription drugs illegally. Why do we have that in our society? I don't think it's because of just sheer love of drugs. I think it's because we have a profound boredom, a loss of sense of where we're going, a loss of reason. In places like Africa, when you have to wake up every single morning to go get your water from the well way down the way, you find very little people committing suicide. Very few people are uh, spending their hours binging on Netflix, going from video to video to video to video. Very few Africans will do that because Assetia is not their problem. But when Assetia becomes a problem, you find whole generations of people binging on Netflix, going watching some whole series, one after the other. And it's interesting. And so I wouldn't put the main problem of our society in uh, lusts, for example. I would put it in ascetia. And it's something that I'm positing as a theological proposition, as w w the main vice of our modern times. Because lust itself becomes the way of escaping the devil of midday. The boredom of looking out my window. The boredom of not being able to take what's going on. Going further, Thomas Aquinas describes sloth as a sad rejection of loving, intimate union with the Creator. And that's important, those words. It's a sad, a sorrowful, or sad rejection of intimate union with the Creator. And that's how he would define sloth. And when we turn away, and looking out the window, there's a profound sadness that besets the soul. It's somewhat interrelated with depression. The depression is a blanket term we put upon many things that... Um, could be rooted in many reasons. But definitely ascetia leads to depression. It's an acknowledgement of meaninglessness. I acknowledge that everything is meaningless. So I look out the window and I'm bored. <laughs> if everything is meaningless, it's not like it, it's not like all of a sudden I go, ah! That's not what I do. If everything is meaningless, I go, ah. Even, even reacting is meaningless. So why bother? And that's sad. And then in the end, you can say all you want, but in the end, like, huh. So going, here's another person that's writing on it. Esedia is a profound withdrawal into self. It's a prof I repeat, Esedia is a profound withdrawal into self. Action is no longer perceived as a gift of oneself, as a response to prior love 
that calls us, enables our action, and makes it possible. Yep. Okay. Action is no longer perceived as a gift of oneself, as a response to prior love that calls us, enables our action, and makes it possible. Action is no longer perceived as a gift of oneself. Rather, it is seen instead as an uninhibited seeking of personal satisfaction. So I'm not inhibited to go out and satisfy myself. Action, when you're slothful or in ascetia, becomes uninhibited action of personal satisfaction. In fear, with a fear of losing something. If I don't go get them all now, don't go buy it all at the store and hoard, I might lose something. I might lose something. So I have to go and hoard. I have to go and pack it up. I might lose something. I might lose it. It's the desire to save one's freedom at any price and reveals in reality a deep enslavement to the self. I'll repeat that. It's the desire to save one's freedom at any price reveals in reality a deeper enslavement to the self. I need to be free to satisfy myself, essentially. There is no longer any room for an abandonment of the self to the other or for joy of gift. What remains is sadness and bitter or bitterness within the one who distances himself from the community and who, being separated from others, finds himself likewise separated from God. Let me repeat. There is no longer any room for the abandonment of self to the other or for joy of gift. What remains is sadness or bitterness within. Sorry. What remains is sadness or bitterness within the one who distances himself from the community. You find yourself distancing yourself from the community and refuging, finding refuge in fill in the blank. Somebody who's hoarding, because that was the last example. Hoarding they no longer want to go out. They no longer want to connect. They want to save up everything in their house so that they might be free. How does that help to them to be free, really? No, it doesn't. It makes them a slave of themselves. But free to use it someday. So they can be free to use it someday until you get it piled up to the ceiling and then they can no longer sleep. The profound disdain always makes me look somewhere else. And so I start grabbing what I can and shoveling it down to fill up that boredom, that in inadequacy in my life. It is a mistake to think that sloth is laziness again. It's a mistake to think that sloth is laziness. The slothful might very well be busy doing things. That's very, very important to note, too. If you're slothful, you might be very busy, but you're running around not doing much. 
Evagrius, St. Evagrius claims, in fact, that the slothful are often in a frenzy of pointless action. Now this, now that, in their disgust at the actual work given to them by God, they're avoiding it by running around from thing to 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 thing. And they're not looking at what they need to do in the face and doing it. They're avoiding it. We might, we might anticipate the slothful to be very busy. And as the purposelessness of their lives is revealed, they become more and more destructive. That's a nice phrase. It's good to meditate upon. I'll repeat that one. We might anticipate the slothful to be very busy. And the second part is what's interesting. <clears throat> and very true. And the purposefulness of their... No, and as the purposeful, purposelessness of their lives is revealed, they become destructive. So you're running around, you're busy doing all kinds of stuff to fill up that hole, to fill up that hole. And then when you realize that all that is vain, vanity upon vanity, vanity upon vanity, you're tempted to suicide. So it leads down that road of filling yourself, filling yourself with ceaseless action, never-ending action. And then finally, when you realize it's pointless, you become destructive. You destroy it all. I burn it all down. I become destructive. Hopefully you don't get to that extent. More of the indolence. Sloth rejects the burden of order. And that's what I find to be true, going back to that whole thing of a monk. What's hard is not prayer. When you're slothful, it's not prayer, because you still love God. It's not prayer. It's the fact that you're going to prayer this time and this way, every day, exactly the same, for so long, and then da 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 It just gets hard. That's very hard to do. That's what's hard. It's the order. And you feel like you're stuck in a box, and you want to be free of it all. But free for what? To sit down and watch Netflix? To free for what? To run around the house and do nothing? And so that's interesting. What I just talked about there was it's a hatred of the order, not a hatred of prayer, per se. It's the hatred of having to say the rosary again. Because the order of the rosary... I don't hate the rosary, but I hate having to say... You get that? It's the order that you hate when you're in sloth. Okay. Choosing... So let's read that again. More than indolence, sloth rejects the burden of order. Choosing instead the breezy lightness of freedom. Loving self more than relation and autonomy more than good. In sloth, one rejects the weight and density of living in, order, in an ordered creation. Beautiful text. And very, very right on. It's very, very, very right on. Again, um, it's one of the books on Evagrius. It's called Asedia. It's um, asedia and, discon and it's discontents. 
and metaphysical analysis and so on. It's very cool. It's very good. Um, it's in the uh, progressive research. Uh, one of my brothers told me about Evagrius two years ago, and I've been trying to pick up some of his stuff. Um, okay, now the best remedy against sloth, at least according to Evagrius, is one our is one our freedom would find disgusting, for it requires remaining under the yoke, keeping yoked, that is, maintaining fidelity, is unbearable in this world that we live today. So classic remedy, the classic remedy, say like for example, um, I can't stand facing the people anymore or what would be one i can't stand doing the prayers anymore i can't stand uh, reading anymore i can't stand studying anymore i don't know fill in the blank what it is that i'm repulsed by and i'm escaping that order the best remedy is to do it honestly is because every time you escape the moment you fall into an escape you're falling into escapism the moment you fall into an escape, you fall into escapism. And so you can't really stop doing what you're doing. The best thing to do is the thing that you hate. To work against your freedom. <laughs> to freely work against your freedom. Put it that way. <laughs> to freely work against your freedom. And to continue doing what you hate most. It's funny that it works that way. But you have to because it's like... It's like in a marriage. One of the ways you see this very calm, to be very common in a marriage is it's really hard work to actually communicate. <laughs> it is. It's hard work. For some people, it's easy. Some people, it's hard. It's hard work to constantly have to come home. Like One of the things in marriage prep that you always have to talk about to the man, there's other things for the women. Um, for the man, it's like when you're driving home from work, you have to come up with a story and tell your wife a story about what happened in your day. And you actually have to prepare yourself and think of a plan of what you're going to say about your day. Or else when you get home, Chuck, how was your day? And you'll say, fine. You know? And then you'll go, where's a beer? And, uh, you know? Um, and it's hard work, actually, to actually talk with your wife. But the way to not escape and fall into an escapism is to confront it and to deal with it. <laughs> There is no way around that. There is no way around that. It's very important to take the bull by the horns, as we say, and to deal with it. So for me to go back and study more metaphysics, it's like, no. <laughs> I've been studying it for 12 years of graduate work. <laughs> Not 12 years of graduate, 12 years of university work. So I'm like, yeah, I've had enough. But for me, it's like my lifeblood, so I need to. I need to go back to that. And that's why these preaching things are good for me, because I'm forced. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I'm forced to go back to it. It's good. And study anew, which is really nice. Now, very good. I hope you can really see where I'm coming from in saying that Asedia, I think, is the primary vice of our modern time more than ever before because of the riches that we have in our modern times. I think in a society where, when, like, for example, my father, my beautiful and wonderful father, 
he said to me, when I went to the university for the first time, you know, my dad was born in the Depression. And so he said to me, Mike, there's no way I'm letting you work in university. No way. I worked for 35 years in a job I did not like in order to be able to pay for your university. There's no way. I'm like, you worked in a job you don't like for 35 years? There's no way I would have done that. <laughs> no way I would have done that. Uh, my dad, coming from the Great Depression, uh, this wasn't his primary preoccupation. wasn't his idea. wasn't his idea. Now it may be. No, I don't know. You can ask my dad. <laughs> you can ask my dad. Now it may be, but not during those time periods. Not when you're coming out of World War II and you're coming out with this whole thing and the whole country needs to be built. It's not going to be the primary advice at that particular point, but definitely for this first world country. It becomes the primary vice. And it's something that we actively need to fight. And the best means to fight it is to do what I do not like. To do what I do not like. That is to suit up and show up, as my mom would say. You suit up and you show up. You have a bit of toughness. And I think that's where the spiritual battle has to concentrate. It's confronting those areas of our life that are the hardest to confront. And not to escape all the time. And it's escape that makes us shameful. And it's escape that makes us blame. We always find an excuse to remain in our escapism. Always find an excuse. And nevertheless, we continue to perpetuate this problem that's ever-deepening ever-deepening, where we're drugging ourselves in a thousand ways so that we can have a bit of joy in a life that feels like, otherwise there is none. Good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.